0: 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble.
1: For the next three weeks, we are going to be considering some of the most difficult and costly decisions that if you're a Christian, then you and I will ever have to make as Christians. What we're going to think about is likely to impact our business careers, social reputation, family relationships, long-standing friendships, and certainly the place of St. Helens as a church with regard to the establishment. Perhaps in 21st century Britain, the issues we're talking about for the next three weeks will impact us in in a way that Christians haven't seen themselves being impacted for generations. We're going to explore together three chapters written to a young church formed in a profoundly irreligious and pagan culture. Christianity had shaped none of its social or civic norms, and though there were Jewish people in the city, it doesn't seem that Jewish thinking had particularly impacted its culture. Because the culture of Corinth was so very different to us, we've had hundreds of years of Christian influence, there is nothing you do or believe today that is not impacted by the Christian faith if you've grown up in the West. But because the culture of Corinth was so very different to ours, then getting hold of some of these issues is gonna be tricky and challenging and we will need to engage our brains and keep our thinking caps on. I hope that what we talk about this morning for the next two weeks afterwards on Sunday will be something we discuss long and hard and think about through the week. One of the earliest sermons I ever preached was down in Southeast London. The end of the service, somebody came to me at the door and says, oh, I do like coming to church and hearing you preach, William. And You can imagine young curate, oh, all excited. And he said, "Is it give me a chance totally to switch off, think of nothing and get myself ready for the week ahead?" Well if that's you, I'm afraid you've come to the wrong place. But as we get a hold on what we're considering, we shall see the connections and challenges absolutely everywhere. And the key issue is there in verse 10, and I'd like us to look at it because that really has it in a nutshell. If anyone sees you who have knowledge reclining at table in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? Now now there will be some amongst us for whom this is a particular presenting issue. I don't imagine it's a vast number, who spend long hours agonizing over whether to eat food offers to idols or to eat in idol shrines. But some will have done. Those of us from Hindu backgrounds, some who've come from families where ancestor worship is central. However, every human culture is pockmarked by sin Human culture, language, and the culture that flows with it flows from Babylon. Every human culture has its ceremonial rituals, badges, emblems, markers that embody what they think is important. And because every human culture is by definition sinful, these emblems and badges stand at the intersection. And therefore, how we, how we interact with these badges and emblems, what you might call these flags, why it impacts profoundly on who we are and how we live and how we're seen by those around us. So this is very, very significant. Now, one writer has, as the Americans say, done the math. And added up that there were at least 17 different pagan deities worshipped in the multiple shrines of Corinth. Apollo, Aphrodite, Asclipius, Athena, Demeter, Dionysus, Artemis, and so on and so on and so on. Most persons could accommodate all gods and goddesses into their religious behavior and they choose from a great cafeteria line of religious practices. Many believed there was safety in numbers. I like that, you know, hedge your bets. But food was key in it all. And meals and social engagement and spiritual involvement was central. And the gods were thought to be present as you ate since the meals were held in their honor. The Gentiles, who'd become Christians, had attended such meals all their lives. And so meat was sacrificed to the god, a third of it was burned, a third of it was given to the priest, and much of that was then sold in the marketplace, and a third of it was actually eaten by you, the worshiper, either in the shrine as you reclined at table or as you went home. And literally Everything was governed by this, everything. Listen to this invitation. Keraman, the person inviting, requests your company at the table of Lord Serapis. Serapis was a Greco-Egyptian god of the sun. Tomorrow, the 15th at nine o'clock, where the first birthday of his daughter is to be celebrated at a meal in the Serapium. Would you go? So you graduate, your your parents come up to university and of course they organize a meal in the temple. But but you've become a Christian while you've been in Corinth. Your parents aren't Christian, they fully expect you to offer a sacrifice to the uh, the temple and if if you don't eat at the meal, why it might endanger the whole of the rest of your career. What are you gonna do? You pass a GCSE, great, well done, and your parents visit the school, and the school organize a celebratory meal with a sacrifice, of course. Are your family going to attend? You complete a business deal, and everybody goes out to work, and of course, at the after work celebratory party, you all go to the temple, of course you do, it was the restaurant, effectively, and a sacrifice is made, are you gonna absent yourself? Please don't underestimate the seriousness of this. Fail to tip your cap to the deity, hedge your bets, as it were. You bring shame and dishonor on the school, on your business, on your family. It's a moral matter, just as much as spiritual. You will incur the displeasure of the gods. And then there's exclusion. You're not part of the set. What an old bull you are. And derision. You imagine the social media in a jimmy? He stayed away from the after party because many Christians in the first century were called atheists because they didn't do this sort of thing. What kind of God do they believe in? Now, both here in chapter eight, verse 10, and in the first 20 verses of chapter 10, it seems that many Christian people, because of what they knew in Corinth, thought they could just crack on with full integration. So look at verse eight of our passage today. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do do not eat and no better off if we do, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block. To the weak, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged and, on account of his weak conscience, stumble? So the Corinthians knew they had knowledge. They they know that there's only one God. They know they're safe from idols. They've been baptized after all. What's the problem? Crack on. Open the bubbly. Now, all of this ties in with what we know about Corinth. There's a fascinating article that um, I managed to get hold of this week. It was written in 1992 by a guy called John Barclay up in Glasgow. And having conducted a bit of a study of this church and the church in Ephesus, he says this, the church in Corinth did not consider the church to be a cohesive community, but more of a club whose meetings provided important moments of spiritual insight and exaltation but didn't have global implications of moral and social change. The more the Corinthians understood their faith as a special endowment of knowledge and special spiritual skills, the less they expect to embrace the hostility of the surrounding culture. It's classically Corinthian, successful, full of successful people, really knowing their stuff, Free, therefore, right. But their knowledge having little impact on their behavior. Worldly, loving status, wanting to be loved by the world, loving the letters before and after their names, the titles of their senior figures, the success of their children at school. Oh, we've got knowledge. What's wrong with eating at the idol temple? Crack on. We don't want to be thought as odd. Might be bad for the gospel. Paul is nothing like so casual. And already I wonder if we're beginning to see just how significant this is. Every human culture is pockmarked by sin. Human culture by definition is sinful. Language comes from Babylon Every culture has its social, civic, financial rituals and ceremonies, and there are emblems, banners, markers, badges, you might say even flags, that mark out those key entry points to the wicked philosophies that lie behind the culture. Are you gonna take part in them? They're embodied in our schools and our universities, our government institutions, and our financial practices, and the establishment. How are you going to be seen? The thing is, it's so much actually easier to see it in a culture that is not our own, isn't it? You think the Corinthians were eating meat at idol ceremonies in the temple. What were they thinking? And so what Paul does, he's very, very subtle here, and he approaches, if you like, by stealth. Verses one to three, it's not what we know that counts to God, it's who we are. Verses four to six, what we know has fundamentally changed who we are. Verses seven to 13, who we are will radically change how we live first verse one to three it's not what we know that counts to God it's who we are now straight away if we read the first three verses here you can see Paul is dealing with a problem and the problem has to do with knowledge and pride and you know that the Corinthians really thought they knew stuff they consider themselves to be in the know with regards to idols and idolatry and the trouble with knowing stuff is it can make us so proud just pop up to Cambridge and you'll see that Verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, but this knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he doesn't yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God, or it could be God is known by him. Now, I love this a little bit. It's a great piece to do during exam term, okay? So forgive one or two little asides to those who've got exams coming up this term. But, you know, it's not what you know that counts to God. Honest, it's not. It's how you use it. And the question is, do you use what you know to build other people up or to puff yourself up? If you really know, it'll impact who we are. And, of course, because God is love, then... If we really know, if we have true spiritual knowledge from God, we will love and we'll seek to build people up. And so just to be a little bit naughty, could I put it like this? You know, God isn't particularly concerned whether you know lots or little. What he's bothered about is how we use what we know. And that's what verse 3 is saying. Because God is love, then if anyone loves God and have understood the love of God, then then they've got true knowledge. And the truly spiritual person will use their knowledge to build people up. This is such fun to talk about. You know, God isn't particularly concerned whether you get 15 nines at GCSE or three ones. Is there such a thing as a one? I hope your parents do tell you that from time to time. God isn't really bothered whether you're a bus driver, a builder, or a beautician. It's not particularly significant to God whether you join the magic circle law firm in the city or fudge it, cuff it, and shred in Shenfield. What matters to God is whether you build up your Christian brother in love. And so you can have one mastermind with John Humphreys, starred in University Challenge with Jeremy Paxman, completed the Times Jumbo in 25 minutes, an assumed position of senior partner in whatever company you work for. But really, that's pretty irrelevant to God. What matters to God is how we use our knowledge, and God is love, and so do we love our brothers and sisters. We used to have such fun about this at... Uh, school um, parents days, you know, we'd go after the school parents day and you had these lovely teachers, they're all poor things having to dress up and they got their stuff all, their mark columns and all the rest of it. And they'd point at some mark on the table, you know, little um, Finola only scored 32.3% on subatomic particle test. And I would say, I'm really not too bothered how she did in the subatomic particle test. How does she behave in class? That's what really matters to God, and it left the poor teacher slightly speechless. But when it comes to this matter of idol meat and whether you attend the temple and so forth, it's not what you know that matters to God. It's who you are. But then secondly, verse four through seven, what you know has changed profoundly who you are, and the key here is verse six. Yet for us... This is the Christian person. There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, that's the conclusion of verses 4 through 6. In verse 4, Paul quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. We've been thinking about this all morning. It's foundational stuff. Idols are nothing. And the Old Testament mocks idols and those who worship them mercilessly, quite rightly so. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. They don't make a sound in their throat. They're unable to speak. They know nothing. They're powerless and impotent. And those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So you follow the idolatrous philosophy of Marx, you'll become like him, harsh and cruel and cold. You follow the idolatrous teaching of capitalism, you will become like it, money-grabbing and greedy. The pagan idol you worship is dumb. Verse five guards against any misunderstanding. It's not to say that these idols mean there is no such thing as hostile and evil supernatural power in this world. Look at verse five. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one. So I hope you do believe there are wicked, powerful, satanic forces. Where else did the teaching of Muhammad come from? Or Marx? Or the fascist teaching that dominated Europe? (laughs) Yes, of course, there, there are such things as satanic forces, but the idols themselves are absolutely nothing. So verse six, for us, there is one God, the Father from whom all things are and for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So there's one God, one Lord, one Jesus Christ, one Lord and God of heaven and earth, the eternal self-existing almighty God. He is the Father, he is our Father. He is the supreme being. He's the source of the whole universe with everything in it. He created everything. He sent his son into the world, who himself was the agent of creation and brought everything into being through his powerful word. And he recreated you as one of his people. And so now if you belong to Jesus Christ, I was gonna say you've been ripped, but you've been lifted out of the world of idolatry, whether it's Marxism or Islamism or whatever it happens to be, and you've now been planted in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what you know has radically, fundamentally altered who you are, fundamentally. So then idols are nothing. There are such things as evil forces, of course there are. But if you're Christian, you've been plucked out of the orbit of such things and now placed in an entirely different galaxy where none of these things hold sway whatsoever. So, it's not what you know that matters, it's who you are, love. What you know has fundamentally changed who you are. And finally, who we are should then change how we live. See, with those principles in place, then verses 7 through 13, I think, make straight sense just as you read them. Are you going to be impacted by your spiritual knowledge, your true knowledge, or is your so-called knowledge just puffed-up pride? Verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Oh yeah, food won't commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But, but take care that this right of yours doesn't somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anybody sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died and thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ? Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat ever again. Please notice, and this is very important, we're just about to come to the sharp end. um, Please notice, Paul never calls the Corinthian congregation strong he doesn't actually agree with the Corinthians and with what they're doing with their knowledge. It is absolutely not that Paul is basically saying, look, I know there are a few people whose consciences are troubled by this and so forth for the time being. And therefore, for the time being, I really think for their sake, you should take a different line while they get a bit stronger. But in due course, once they're strong, then crack on and eat in the idol's temple, all is well. No, he is dead set against them eating in the idol temple. And We're going to hear that in chapter 10. So what we're talking about here has, I was going to say, absolutely nothing but precious little to do with minor matters. Light little things about whether you go to the pub after work or whether you watch a particular type of film or uh, whether you wear a face mask during lockdown. Uh, And people have used this passage completely butchering it to uh, try and back one position or another. No, Paul is wanting his readers to distance themselves radically from social convention, ceremonial ritual of an idolatrous culture and to stand right apart from it. And he's really worried about them, that their feet are far too close to the fire. And so he's approached by stealth. You know, you're big on knowledge. You think because of knowledge, you can do what you like with regards to the temple. Hang on, it's not what you know that counts to God. It's who you are. Oh, by the way, who you are uh, has radically changed. What you know has radically changed who you are. And, and so now who you are, if you really have knowledge, should radically impact the way you live. Okay, well, we're ready now to think about it a bit more uh, practically. It's much easier to see this kind of stuff in another culture. I remember when I first went to Riga in Latvia and I was taken on tour of the Museum of Occupation by somebody who had lived through much of the Soviet times. And the Museum of Occupation, 1939 to 1989, the Soviet occupation of, uh, of, uh, of the Baltic states is terrifying. And it's so obvious. Um, my tour friend, my great friend Alvis, he said to me, the thing is, in Soviet times, you know, every family had orthodox icons in their home. Now, I've got an issue with that, but every family had an orthodox icon in their home. But in Soviet times, you had to remove the orthodox icon and you had to put up a picture of Stalin. Would you do it? Oh, and in Soviet times, in the factories where Alvis worked, every state factory state owned, in every state factory at lunchtime, everybody stopped and there was a whole hour of communist propaganda that you had to listen to pumped out over the loudspeaker. What would you do? Now, I chatted to Henry. I said, look, Henry, where's the kind of Asian touch point?" And I guess a number of you guys are saying, well, we know exactly where the Asian touch point is here. And I said, "Is it? should I be talking about the Communist Party? What should I be talking about? Uh, and uh, Henry said, tomb-sweeping ceremonies. A-, a tomb-sweeping ceremony, you go and sweep the tombs of your ancestors, burn paper money so that you keep the ancestors happy and all goes well with you in your culture, your generation. Are, are you going to do that? I mean, I know you've got knowledge and really Stalin is nothing and uh, Lenin is, they're both dead and you know that your ancestors have no grip over you whatsoever, but are you going to do it now? Does your knowledge come with love? What about a younger Christian who doesn't understand this? Are you going to cause them to stumble? Do you see the issue? But as we come a little bit closer to home, I just wonder if now that the Christian foundations of our British culture have gone, and now that the Christian worldview is no longer the establishment worldview, well, whether the markers, the social civic rituals and ceremonies, the badges and the emblems and so forth, these intersection points are not becoming a little bit more obvious. (laughs) Every human culture is by definition sinful. Human cultures come from Babylon. Human cultures embody in language and practice human rebellion. And every human culture has its ceremonial rituals and emblems and banners and flags. So what about the rainbow flag? When they insist that when you send your email out, it must have a rainbow flag on it, Uh, are, are you gonna comply? Well, I know you know that actually you're safe. You've been baptized. You learn a lot of other different sort of stuff in church and you're not in danger in this kind of area and you don't believe it anyway and it's a whole load of mumbo jumbo. You know, and it's only done just to show that the company is right on and in touch and gets properly listened to out there in the pagan world. I know you know that, but are you actually going to do it? Is your knowledge clothed in love? And actually, the more senior you are, the more important this is. See, what about the diversity and inclusion policy in your company? Is it genuinely diverse and inclusive? Or is it actually being used to promote a fundamentally totalitarian view and a profoundly pagan and unchristian point of view? I hope you've done some really careful asking of your HR department on this issue. And if it's actually profoundly undiverse, which most of the diversity policies are, they're just a cloak to bring in totalitarian and uninclusive and undiverse viewpoints, then I hope you refuse to go to the training. And the more senior you are, the more important it is that you do that. Oh and, and and it may result in the boss being unhappy? Yep. And when Jesus came into the world was he not hated and despised? What about gender pronouns? Or what about your children and relationship and sex education? Now, I did a certain amount of research on the government uh, uh, RSE policy and parental um, rights. Will you keep your kids in school sex education? Frequently asked questions. Will my child be taught sex education at primary school? Surely this is too young. Answer. We are not introducing compulsory sex education at primary school, we are introducing relationship education at primary school level. Many primary schools choose to teach such education as part of the relationship education. In such instances, the government recommend you discuss this with the school to understand what they propose to teach your young child and how. If you continue to have concerns, you have an automatic right to withdraw your child from such sex education lessons, and parents continue to have such an automatic right to request to withdraw their child from sex education delivered as part of the RSE in secondary school up to three terms before the child turns 16, at which point the child, him or herself, can choose to withdraw themselves. Do you know what they're teaching your kids? Have you been to see the head with another group? Or is it kind of, well, I know basically we teach our children at home and so what goes on in the school is water up a duck's back. And, but what if there's a younger Christian in that school? Or a Pentecostal church family? You've got the ability to go and speak to the head and the governor and so forth. Are you going to keep your kids in? So this issue and what we're going to be thinking about will give us plenty to discuss over lunch. Being Christian in a pagan culture is going to impact profoundly what people think of us. The Corinthians thought they could have knowledge and retain social status. And our so-called freedom that comes from our knowledge cannot be a foil for simple accommodation to the pagan norms of our culture. It cannot. You can see it in other cultures. It's obvious in Corinth. What about the Christian in 21st century, pagan, idolatrous England, profoundly impacted by wicked ideologies that exist in this world. Really, it's not what you know that bothers God, it's who we are. Who we are has been fundamentally changed by the gospel and who we are will radically change how we live. Well, plenty for us to think about, uh, and let's do that as we chat in a few minutes' time. Let me lead us in prayer. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that we, as we bow now, we bow before the only true and living God. There is no God besides you. All things come from you, all things exist for you. All things come into being through the powerful word of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have brought us out of idolatry into the kingdom of your son whom you love. We praise you for radically changing who we are. And we praise you that you are the God of love, that God is love, that is who you are. And we pray now that you would enable us as we think about these things in different circumstances and situations that, to, that love would govern how we think and that you would give us courage to be the men and women you've made us as we lead our families and others in our workplaces. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.